Heavenly Father, we ask that you would search us and know us this morning. Lay us bare before your word that we would refuse to hide behind our fears or our sins or our assumptions or our pride. Teach us, God, what we cannot learn ourselves, namely what it is to worship you acceptably. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. All right. Uh, We're going to be going to Romans chapter 12 this morning. It's going to be our first text. And uh, I want to tell you while you're going there about a simple exercise that I do, and I want to encourage you to do it as well. And that is, it's kind of like Marley, Marley kind of hit on it a little bit, but what I try and do is I try and listen throughout a sermon. I don't usually take notes or anything like that, but I try and listen for two things that I can walk away from and share. Now, I mean, you could be on Facebook or Twitter and share those things, but just two things to share in general, share with somebody in person or however in conversation. Try and walk away from two th- with the sermon from the sermon with two things to share, and what it does for me is helps me to pay attention and it helps me to be conscious about uh, what we're doing here. When we're receiving, we're not just to hoard what we have; we're to share what we have. So, Romans twelve, one and two. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will of God, what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so again, this week the sermon is about worship. And I want to just tell you straight up from the beginning, this is, this, is a, this is a sermon about something that is very broad in our life, worship. As, as we talked about last week, worship is not just what we do when we come here. Worship is something that Christians do and non-Christians do alike. Worship is what people do. It's like breathing. And so the question really is not are you worshiping, the question goes to what are you worshiping, or how are you worshiping? So a non-believer worships, they worship something, the only thing is it's not God. And so Christians, we worship God. Now the question is, do we worship God rightly? So this is a, this is a topic this morning that maybe, um, it, it might be a little bit uncomfortable, because it steps on our toes in a lot of different areas of our life, because it really, it really, when you start to talk about something that is so pervasive in, in all of our life, it really becomes, um, it kind of can be very offensive. And I don't mean offensive like, uh, in maybe the way we sometimes take it, I mean offensive like pushing back on us. It pushes back on us. And so this morning, if this sermon pushes back on you, know, first of all, that this is not, this is not a personal thing for anybody. This is a, a thing for a personal thing for all of us, because we're all Christians. And second, remember what we're gathered around 
what we're gathered here around, and that is the gospel. That is what Jesus has done. And so what that means is maybe this offends you. Maybe this pushes back on some, in some area of your life like hard. You know, maybe you start to see, you know, this is, I, I'm not really doing what, what we're talking about, and, and this is kind of uncomfortable because I don't fit that bill or, or I don't, you know, maybe like that idea. What I want to remind you of this morning is the same thing that I need to be reminded of is that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is grace in Christ Jesus. And the wor- what we have come here to worship, what we have come here to celebrate is what we came to the table for is something that we cannot do in ourselves. So please keep that in mind this morning that, that this, is, this, is, this should all point us to, to his grace and to his work, okay? So... This sermon's about worship, and last week we explored what it is to worship. We explored that everyone worships, not just Christians, and how as individuals, how we are to worship properly, and we used this definition. This was our working definition of worship. It is to ascribe to God ultimate value and worth in such a way that energizes and engages your entire being. Now, this means that worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. Worship, true worship, is something that must happen on Monday morning as well. Now, like I said, worship happens on Monday morning. The question is not, does worship happen on Monday morning? The question is, does proper worship happen on Monday morning? So before you were dismissed last week, I left you with a charge, which was this in your homes, in your schools, at your jobs, in your dealings with your neighbors, live and sing and love so as to proclaim to the world that God is the inexhaustible fountain of every blessing, supremely valuable and eternally worthy of all worship. Now, this wasn't just a charade or a good suggestion. If you think about it, all it really said was act like a Christian or obey God. Nothing more than a basic responsibility of all believers. So I want you to be conscious this morning about how you may or may not have lived up to that responsibility over the past week. And again, if you did not do well, maybe there's discouragement, maybe there's guilt, or maybe even shame there. Don't, don't, don't let that rest in your heart. Don't bear that burden. Let it go to grace This is why you need the gospel. This is why you need the gospel. Excuse me. If we think about it like this, we couldn't even pass the test. The test that we were to take, we can't pass. We can't even get a single answer correct. And so Jesus came not just to whisper in our ear good information, not just to come and give us even some of the right answers. Jesus came to take the test for us. He came and said, move over, I'll take the test. And so that is the good news of the gospel, that where we are weak, he is strong. When we fail, which we fail often, he is strong. And there's no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. All right, so as long as you are on this side of eternity, your worship, our worship, will indeed be feeble and flawed. It will be marred by failure and imperfections. But again, be of good cheer because Jesus has come to do in you and through you what you cannot do 
in and through yourself. This, this is the gospel. I heard it said like this, and I think it's a really good quote. It says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of salvation. It's not just the message or the steps to take if you're lost and you need to be saved. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is the beginning, it's the end, it's the front and the back. You never outgrow grace. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you into all truth, and this includes teaching us how to worship. So don't be illusioned with perfectionism this morning. We're not perfect. Our singing this morning was not perfect. Your singing wasn't perfect. Your, your worship this morning was not perfect. It's not perfect. That's okay. Don't be disillusioned with perfectionism. We will fail, but he will not. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to, again, charge you this morning. So be prepared to accept it. And like I told you last week, this week we're going to be focusing on why it is vitally important that we gather together and what our gathering together has to do with worship. Why it's important that we gather together and what we do here, what it has to do with worship. So in other words, everything we do here on the Lord's Day is intentional and has a purpose that is related to worship. It goes back to worship. The fact of The fact of the matter is that we live in a country and a culture in a time when an embarrassingly low percentage of self-professing Christians gather weekly. Even if we were to grant that the number was 50%, which is a whole 10 points higher than what the best, most generous estimates are, if we were to say that number of Christians who gather weekly was 50%, guess what? It's still so far short of what the Bible expects. It's, it's unacceptable when it comes to the biblical standards. And so you may wonder why choosing not to gather together biblically is, is unacceptable or, and even sinful and yet so prevalent in America and in Taylor and even among our small congregation. And the answer to that question is worship. Worship is the central reason we gather weekly it's the central reason that why we gather is so important. And now, to remind you again what I mean by worship, lest you assume that I'm saying that our singing is the central reason. No, no, no. It's not about our singing. That's not the most important reason. It's important, but it's not the, that's not it. That doesn't fully capture what it is to worship. Worship is not just the singing before the sermon. Like I told you last week, our word worship comes from the English word, the old English word, worth-ship, worth-ship. And that just means to ascribe, to, to ascribe worth. And we use the definition from Pastor Tim Keller that says, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your entire being. To something. Ascribing ultimate value to something. Now, True worship is ascribing ultimate value to the one who is ultimately valuable. That's to God. But you all worship. We all worship. I heard an interesting illustration in a sermon this past week, and the sermon was about Christians and sports. It was a sermon from a pastor out of Birmingham, Alabama, the mecca of college football, right? And he's, and he's preaching to his big congregation about sports 
He's probably wishing he could go back and re-preach that message again this Sunday for all those, you know, haughty Alabama fans. But the sermon illustrated culminated with a question, something like this. If someone totally unfamiliar with our Western culture who only spoke another language were to come and observe your life for a few weeks, what would this observer assume was the most important thing in your life? If, if somebody from outside of our culture who did not speak your language, could not understand just the words you were saying, but were to observe your life for a few weeks, what would that observer assume was the most important thing in your life? Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your entire being. So that thing in your life that you ascribe ultimate value to that energizes and engages your entire being, that is the thing that you worship. Now, that has huge implications on us when we gather together. What you worship has huge implications on us when we gather together. If I were to take a pound of sugar and a pound of sand and I were to take a pinch of sand and put it into that pound of sugar, shake it all up, we would still essentially have a pound of sugar. You may, you may notice the sand. It may be a little bit weird, but you, you wouldn't necessarily have to throw that out because essentially that pinch of sand has not changed what we have. But if I were to take a pound of sand and mix it with a pound of sugar and shake that up, how many of you are going to volunteer to put that in your coffee? No, because essentially we don't have a pound of sugar anymore. We have a mixture of disgustingness. We're not putting that in our coffee. We're not going to make a cake with that. And so think about that for us this morning. What are we this morning? Are we a pound of sugar with maybe a pinch of sand in our lives? Or are we some nasty mixture that nobody wants to taste? This is why when we think and talk about our worship you can't separate individual worship and collective worship. You can't. And we'll get more into that in a minute. But our worship is what sets us apart as the church from a country club, from a homeowners association, from a, a, a sorority. You know, we're not just a club. And worship is what sets us apart as the church. What makes what we do here different than what we do in any other organizations or clubs we may be a part of. So, let's go to Psalm 95 now. Psalm 95, you know, it's good to talk, when we're talking about worship, to to think and talk about the Psalms. And we're not going to talk a whole lot about them, but as a little aside, the Psalms are songs. They are songs, and they're inspired songs that God has given us to be the church's songbook. So we we should not neglect them. Psalm 95, over the centuries, has apparently been one of the primary places the church has looked to inform our worship. It really tells us virtually everything we need to know about worship. Everything we need to know. And so, let's read Psalm 95. It's not too long. This is the word of the Lord. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This psalm communicates that in order for us to worship well, we must have a few different elements. We talked last week about two of those elements. We talked about spirit and truth. To worship well, we must have spirit and truth. Spirit being how we worship and truth being who we worship. We can genuinely worship being completely devoted and yet if we're worship, if if we are not worshiping God, our genuineness or our spiritual experience is nothing more and nothing less than idolatry. You can worship your spouse or your job or, a, or, or money, and that may be genuine worship, but it's not true worship. It's not worship in spirit. And if we say all the right words and go through all the right motions towards the right God, on the other hand, but we don't experience his beauty and splendor and we walk away unchanged or unmoved, this isn't true worship either. And I will be, um, I want us to be clear, that, I believe, is our danger at Christ Fellowship. That is our danger. Our danger is, is not so much empty, hyped experiences. Our danger is, is saying right things or going through motions, but walking away unmoved. That, I believe, is something that we need to be mindful of and guard against. That's not worship either. So, to worship well, we must have spirit and we must have truth. third thing we, we need, and this psalm communicates, is that we must have community. To worship well, we must have community. Oh, come, let us sing. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. He is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now obviously we are to worship as individuals. Someone driving alone in the car can have a moment, can worship by belting out the top of their lungs, you know, how he loves or 10,000 reasons or Love lifted me, Conway. We can have a worshiping experience alone, and we should. But I submit to you that our individual worship is preparation for our collective worship. Our individual worship is preparation for our collective worship. Hebrews 10 
24 through the beginning of 25 says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Psalm 105.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalm 107.32 says, Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Psalm 149.1 says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Now, these scriptures, and there are plenty more just like it, amount not only to expectations of regular gathering of God's people to worship him, but these are also to be understood as commands for it. They're commands because they are expecting someone. And some of them are just direct commands. Do this. And yet, this isn't all the Bible has to say about the importance and even the necessity of community in order to worship well. It also tells us by way of teaching us that we are a body. And everybody knows that a body functions better when it is joined together. If my arms and my legs are each in a different corner of this room, my body's not going to function as well as it would all in the same place right here, joined together. The Bible also calls us a family, and there's no question that families function better when all members are present. When you deal with divorce or even with death, there are inherent challenges and obstacles that must be overcome that otherwise would not be issues at all if all the members were present. We are a family. The Bible tells us a body, the Bible tells us a family, and together is always better than alone. But more specifically, we need to find out what is the reason. What is the reason that together is better than alone? There may be um, more reasons, but we're going to talk about one specific reason we need community in order to worship well. We need community in order to worship well. Now, I don't know how many of you listening to me um, are convinced by that, are convinced of that, that we need community to worship well. Because in our culture, it's, it's very common to hear you know, things like, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, or I love Jesus, I just don't go to church. Well, you're all at church this morning, so I might be preaching to the choir, but I want to, I want to, I want to uh, drive home this point in you. So you, one, take this more seriously, because we can always take it more seriously. It's not, it's not to say you don't take it seriously, it's to say that we take it more seriously, and two, that you can... Be a witness to those people that are, those Christians who are all over our culture and all over our community that say, ah, I don't need church. I don't need the church. Here's one reason that community is necessary in order to worship well. Because no one individual can extract someone's full personality or nature. Let me say that again. We need community in order to worship well because no single individual can extract someone's full personality or nature. 
In other words, it takes a community in order to experience someone fully. No doubt you have experienced this with your circle of friends. You know, you can spend all day with one friend, but then when you're joined by other friends, the dynamic of the relationship, the interaction, fundamentally changes. Something that you could not have before. But there's another way that we can, uh, I can um, illustrate this, and it's, it's an even... It's an even more convincing illustration is, is a family. So I want to tell you about a fictional couple here this morning. Their name, are, their name is Jack and Lorraine, and they're married, and they're very happily married, and there's a beautiful relationship here. There's complete honesty, and there's complete transparency. They serve one another. They love one another well, and they're each faithful and devoted to one another. Every day, every day, they're learning and experiencing more of one another. They can can simply look at each other from across a crowded room and and know exactly what the other is thinking. Let's get out of here. Come save me from this conversation. You know, they're, they're on that level. And of course, they argue and and they fight, but they're never bitter, and they make love. Often, they're they're an exemplary couple for us. But one day, Jack and Lorraine become pregnant, and they have a daughter. Now, Jack begins to feel entirely new affection for Lorraine as he experiences a side of her that he could not have ever known before. Now, he enjoys his sweet bride as the mother of his child. Seeing her love and care for his precious daughter evokes an experience of affection for her beyond what he could have ever imagined was even possible before. And all because he's seeing and feeling and knowing a part of this woman's nature that was impossible with just the two of them. The same when Lorraine sees Jack tenderly caring for her little baby girl, watching him hold her. You can almost reach out and touch the affection you see in Lorraine's eyes for her husband. Now, if this is true, or if this can be true of us as finite humans in our relationships, our relationships that are mere shadows of something greater, how much more must this be true in our relationship with our infinite God. If if this can be true in your circle of friends when you're shooting the breeze, if this can be true in your marriage, then how much more true must it be of an infinite God? Infinite. Infinite. Think of Niagara Falls. You can see the top and you can see the bottom. And it's still unbelievable to think that water, just for years and years, doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. And you can look to the side and you can see the edge and you can look to that side and you can see the edge, but infinite, an infinite waterfall. There is no top, there is no bottom, there is no side to side and it's always new. That's our God. And if we can have these experiences in our finite relationships, then must we have these experiences with our God? Oh yes. We are, we are to be looking to him. We are to be growing in the knowledge of Christ, the Bible says. And in order for us to worship our God, who is Father and Son and Spirit, in order to worship our God who supplies wrath and mercy, 
who is love and justice. We need one another like Jack and Lorraine and their daughter need one another. To know the beauty of father and mother and child, we must have family. We need community. To to know father, son, and spirit, we must have family. We must have community. So the more accurate and, and full picture of God you desire, the more you should want to worship in community. Now, we can flip that around and say, if you don't desire a more accurate, full picture of God, maybe you, you know, maybe there are Christians here. And I know certainly there are Christians in this community and throughout our state and throughout our country who, who are satisfied with what they know of God. I, I know enough. I'm going to make it to heaven. I know enough. I'm happy with that. The rest is, I'm fine. I'm fine with the, the rest being a mystery. Or I'm fine with not really knowing what all the Bible says. Maybe, maybe you're here and that's kind of what you, um, where you are. Don't, don't, don't be satisfied. Don't be satisfied. Just think about God in all his splendor, in all his majesty, and let that splendor and majesty and beauty m- motivate you, provoke you to want to know him better. And, and, that, and that means let that desire to want to know him better translate to a desire to want to worship with this community or with a community, with a family more. I, I pray that one day that we gather in this place and we are not satisfied with the hour and a half we, we gather here. The early church, you know, it talks about them gathering daily. And I, I don't think that's because they just, you know, they just thought, you know, I think this would be best for now if we gather daily. You know why they gather daily? Because they wanted to. Because they couldn't stand to be apart from, from each other. Because they loved Jesus. If you tend towards individualism and isolation, or if you demand your way or the highway, it's because at the end of the day, what you really want is to be worshipped. Now, now, it might get a little bit uncomfortable because that is a hard reality for us. When you're driving in traffic and you get so angry at the people around you, just stop and think about it for a minute. What, what are you saying? What is your life, what is your attitude screaming? You're demanding that everybody around you worship you. I've got somewhere to be, and it's way more important than the crappy way you're driving. When we, when we, when we insist or are impatient on our, our own way, or we demand our own way, we are, what we're saying is, I want to be worshipped. When you assume God is just like you, or that you don't need anyone else, you are saying, I want to be worshipped. Now, most of us would never say that, obviously, but 
But what do the observers of your life see? What do the observers of your life, what are the guys who are coming over, don't speak your language, what do they see? What is the guy in the car next to you who can't hear what you're saying? What is he, what message are we sending to, to them? You know, I'm one of those guys who is hesitant to put a fish on the back of my car because, you know, I don't want to be a bad witness because sometimes I can get impatient or sometimes, you know, when people are tailgating me, I just want to slam on my brakes. And sometimes that little fish might be too inconsistent with my life. But, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing. Forget the fish. Who cares about the fish on the back of your car? But what I'm saying is, what are our lives screaming? And at that point, it doesn't matter what we say or don't say because our lives are saying it. Do you demand your way? Do you assume that you cannot ever be wrong? Do you try and stay purposefully ignorant when it comes to things that the Bible teaches because you don't want to have to be accountable to something that you may not agree with or be comfortable with? Do we take what we do here seriously? You know? We, we offer, for instance, coffee and donuts before. And we, you know, it's kind of, it's just a, a nice thing that I, I enjoy it and I know our Bible study group enjoys it, but we do that not just so, you know, a few handful of people can have some snacks. You know why we do that? We do that as an opportunity to come and share your morning cup of coffee or your breakfast or your time with one another. We do it as an opportunity, not just as, you know, whatever. Again, there's no condemnation if you don't take advantage of that opportunity. It's not, it's not about condemnation, but it's about, it's about the question and asking yourself and asking ourselves the question, what am I worshiping? What, or here we could say it this way, how seriously am I taking our community here, or we could say it this way, what makes Sunday different and what makes my membership at a church different than every other day of the week or any other membership that I may hold? Do we take it seriously to, to pursue relationships with one another? Do we take it seriously to to be here on time, ready to sing, ready to worship, ready to share and give with one another. We need community in order to worship well. We cannot just drop in here and there, wander in late or assume that it doesn't matter. Do you, do you see? It, we can't do those things. We can't live that way and assume that it doesn't matter. If you're under the impression that indifference isn't hurting anyone else, you couldn't be more wrong. That, that your indifference, maybe, to this community, your indifference to the community at large, to your family, you can't assume that that doesn't matter. Of course it matters. You can't assume that that doesn't affect anybody or hurt anybody else. Of course it does. You need us and we need you. 
Why? To worship well. We need you. And you need us. Now, our aim must be more than just plurality. Our aim must be more than just having the numbers right. The, the more diverse the worshiping community, the better. The more diverse the worshiping community, the better. The more accurate picture of God we will see. True worship bridges the gap. It connects the dots. It bridges the gap. We talked about the Samaritan woman and the Jew, and they talked about race, and they talked about racial conflict between those two races. Worship bridges the gap between the Samaritan and the Jew. Worship bridges the gap between cultures and race and between even time and space. Between time and space, worship bridges the gap. Worship unites God's people from all times, from Adam to Abraham to to David to you and me. Worship bridges the gap. It unites God's people in all of their diversity around the centrality of who he is and what he has done. Listen to the words from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. As the author has just recounted to us our heritage of faithful men and women and their faithful acts, as he says this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we need each other's witness. We need each other's perspective. We need each other's stories and each other's encouragements and each other's rebuke. We need each other if we are to worship well. Just a quick blurb here. We have on Friday nights, you know, the women and everybody gathers together and the women are doing their book study and they do that for about an hour and then um, the guys are just hanging out drinking coffee, shooting the breeze and uh, for the last two weeks, we have come together at the end and just had a sweet time of sharing stories. We got to, we got to listen to stories of people that like, we sit next to all the time. Sunette shared her story the, the first Friday night. I mean, we stayed up to like 1230, this group of people just talking about our stories, where we come from. And, and, It's incredible to see. Jan shared her story Friday. That's why she was so late coming. (laughs) Jan shared her story last Friday. And it's just incredible to be able to look around. And when you can look, when I can look at these people and I can see your story, you have a story, you have a testimony. I know where you came from and where you are now. And it's incredible. Not because you're incredible, you're incredible, but it's incredible because who God is and what he has done in your life. Yeah, we need that. We need that. So, a uh, plug here. On uh, an upcoming Friday, very soon, either in end of September or early October, I'll let you know as soon as I nail down a date, we're going to do another one. And um, I have a friend coming in 
from Florida who I met when I went to a conference in Florida, and he's got a cool story. And uh, so we're gonna, he's a black guy who grew up in the Mormon church in a time where racism ruled the day. So I'm going to give you a little hint of his story. Um, he's a, it's a cool thing. So when I nail that date down, I want you to be a part. And I don't want you to just come and listen to stories, but I want you to come and I want you to prepare. And I may take some, that may take some time for some of you, but I want you to think about sharing your story as well. That's a little plug. We'll keep moving now. So spirit truth, and community. Uh, and finally, the force el- fourth element that is necessary in order to worship well is gospel, Sabbath, rest. Gospel, Sabbath, rest. This is what the, this is what the last part of Psalm 95 is talking about. We know this because the author of Hebrews offers us the inspired commentary of this very Psalm. He quotes this part of the psalm in chapter 3 of Hebrews, and then he goes on in chapter 4 to explain. Um, and so we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8, and we're going to read through verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4. He, he quoted the psalm here at the end of chapter 3, and he's going on, he's talking about this whole idea of gospel Sabbath Rest in four eight. This is the word of the Lord. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fail, may fall by the way. Uh, Excuse me, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the question here that these Hebrews had that the author is answering is how come David, who came after the promised land, is talking about entering rest? Didn't Joshua take them into their rest, the promised land? And the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, no, no, no. Our rest is so much more than a plot of land in the Middle East. Our rest is is even more than taking Sundays off. Okay? Our rest, if you you look at, let's just read verse 16, our rest. Then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That is our rest. That is the rest. This rest is called grace. This rest has a name, Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus. That's our rest. Gospel Sabbath rest is resting from our self-justifying excuses It's resting from the excuses. Now, we talked about some things that maybe plague our congregation or the church at large. You know, gospel Sabbath rest means we rest from making excuses for those things. Well, you know, I don't do that because that's my my time to, you know, that's my and my wife or mine and my kids' only time to really have a, you know, a fun whatever. 
No, gospel Sabbath rest is resting from any kind of excuse that we could make of why we're not doing what we know in our heart we maybe should be doing. And I'm not saying everybody knows has the same things they should be doing. But when we become convicted, gospel Sabbath rest means we don't make excuses. We don't try and justify ourselves. We don't, we don't try and rest in our self-righteousness, our, our explanations to make us more righteous in ourselves. No, gospel Sabbath rest means resting in Jesus, in His work, in His grace. It, it frees us from the fear of our own fate and assures us that in light of eternity, it does not matter what may happen to me so long as he is mine and I am his. In light of eternity, gospel Sabbath rest removes the fear of our own fate. It doesn't matter what may happen to me here in this life because he is mine and I am his. Are you looking to him like the author of Hebrews said this morning? Have you seen what he has done for you and what, he, what his work now demands from you? Jesus didn't come and erase the chalkboard of our lives only to have you scribble all over it again. No, he, he came to make us all together new. He, he didn't come as a do-over. If you're a Christian this morning, you are completely immune from the damning effects of sin and death and the devil. You are completely immune, completely immune. You are completely immune from the condemnation of your own scribbles. Yes, you are afflicted, but you are not crushed. Yes, you are perplexed, but you're not driven to despair. Yes, you are persecuted, but you are not forsaken. You're struck down, but you're not destroyed. Why? Because he has you, and he will never lose you. He has you. He will never lose you. It's buoyancy. It's buoyancy. It's not not immunity from going through storms. It's buoyancy, immunity from sinking. This life is a battle. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. This life is a battle. And I bet if I were to hear some of your stories this morning, I would know that you know full well life is a battle. Your life is a battle, and to worship is to wage war. To worship is to wage war. That means our worship is either waging war or our worship is is captivity and surrender to the enemy. Worship is war. And war means conflict, and war means an enemy. The devil's strategy has been the same from the beginning, to convince you through seduction and through deception and through persecution that something or someone else other than God is supremely worthy of your worship. When we worship, we are warring. And the strategy of the enemy is to seduce us or to deceive us or to persecute us in such a way as to convince us that something else besides God is the most valuable thing. 
your self-preservation and your health, that's the most important thing. Or, or your pursuit of happiness in, in wealth or in sex or in pleasure, that's the most important thing. No, no. Worship is to war against those things, to war against the uh, elevating those things that are not inherently bad things, maybe, but elevating those things to the position of God. So to supremely love something must mean war, conflict, battle, must mean hate. Now, you, you may, you know, like people say, love and hate, they talk about them as opposites, but really that's not true. Really that's not true. When we love and when we hate, it, it just means we're doing the same action in opposite directions. Now what I mean by that, it's like faith and fear. It's the same thing. When, when I love something, I'm going in this direction. That means I'm going against anything that is going to come against what I love. When I hate something, I'm going against this thing that I'm supposed to be loving. Love and hate are not opposites. We, when we love, we hate. When we hate, we love. The opposite, uh, by just uh, for uh, an aside here, the opposite of love is indifference. It's not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. I care less. No. Hate and love. When we love God, when we love something, that means we hate anything that is going to threaten that love. We hate anything that is going to threaten that love. To see something as supremely valuable and worthy of all devotion must mean we violently guard at all cost anything that would try and seduce and deceive us and steal that devotion. To love God must mean we hate any other thing that would take his rightful place as the object of our worship. I mentioned this last week, but I mentioned it again. It's a confusing Bible verse. You know the verse that says, if you don't hate your father and mother and your sister and brother and children, you can't be my disciple. Jesus isn't saying we got to be mean to everybody in our lives. No, Jesus is saying that when you worship me, when you elevate me to the right place in your life, those other relationships will pale in comparison pale in comparison and those relationships that are good like my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my kids those are good relationships but if I start to elevate that relationship with my wife to the point uh, of God when I, if I start to worship her and I start to rest everything where, where my attitude and my emotions are hinging on what she does when my stability in my life are hinging on who she is, I've elevated her to the point of God in my life. And, and not only is that bad for me, that's bad for her. No, keep that in the proper perspective, in, that, in the proper place, and that is to love and worship God. And those others will pale in comparison. We will be willing. We, you hear stories in, in persecuted countries of Christians, fathers who are bound, threatened, not, their, not just their life. We'll kill your wife and your children if you don't renounce Christ. And, and what do they say? What do their wives and their children say? Do it, save us. No, they say, 
don't do it. How can they be willing to do that? Don't they love those people? Yes, which is why they are not going to worship them. Which is why they're not going to, they're, they're not going to allow these men who may kill or torture these bodies, they're not going to allow them to destroy the soul because they worship the right thing. And so finally this morning we return to where we started to Paul's exhortation to the Romans, to his exhortation to us this morning. Romans chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, lest Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Did you hear that? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. This is not a Christian's duty. This is not a Christian's responsibility. This is our Christian liberty. This is our worship. That's what it said at the beginning of 12, and that's what he's communicating to us. This isn't just something we have to do, drudgery. This is worship. This is a privilege. Now, our gathering for coffee and donuts is part of our worship. Being here on time or not tells us about our worship, how you give your tithes and offerings faithfully and cheerfully or sporadically and hesitantly tells you and tells us about your worship. Worship, whether you give grudgingly or generously, 
that tells you about your worship, about who you are worshiping. When we pass the peace, which is what the early church called their three-minute meet and greets, when we pass the peace, when we give the announcements, these aren't just awkward breaks between songs and sermon. We're giving the opportunity to commune and to bless and to encourage one another for just a few minutes. And so it's not enough time. And so we give the announcements and we encourage and we convey other opportunities to commune, to fellowship with one another. We need more time than three minutes on Sunday morning. We need more time than an hour and a half on Sunday morning. We need it. And that has something to do with our worship. When we come to the Lord's table, when we come to his word, these very much are worship. And they don't belong in a separate category from the singing or from any other part of what we do here on Sundays. Everything we do when we gather together is worship and it is momentous and it is important that you see it that way. It's important that you see it that way for your worship's sake, but also for ours, for the people around you. It's important you see it that way for your worship's sake and for ours. So, would you please stand with me? Let's pray. Again, this week we're going to, I'm going to pray for us, and then together we're going to raise our hands and raise our hearts and sing the doxology together. And then I'm going to charge you and bless you, and after that you are dismissed. If you have any questions or you would like prayer, then you're invited to come forward at that point. So let me remind you again, like I did last week, when it's time to say amen, it's time for all of us to say amen. All right? So be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and honor we have been given to worship you. We so easily and often take it for granted or look at it as something we must do rather than something we desire to do. God, I pray that you would put that desire in our hearts this morning. Lord, for those who may be here who look at what we do in community as something we must do rather than something we desire to do, would you put that desire in our hearts? Would you stir that desire up in our hearts? As we run the race that is our life, we ask that you would strengthen the weary and discouraged, and likewise, God, that you would strengthen those who in prideful striving have become fragile and bitter. This morning we gather here as many members bringing only the gifts that you've given us. Would you remind us once again, God, what those are and where they have come from? We confess that it is our desire to worship you rightly, and if we want that, how much more must you want that for us and for yourself? So teach us and lead us. We ask these things in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. This is the charge to you this morning. If you were one of the unlucky ones who happened to be late, 
sorry. I want to assure you that there's no condemnation for you here. There is only grace. There's grace for us, for sin. There's grace for failures. There's grace for our laziness, for our indifference, for our busyness, and for our intolerance. His grace is what we all need, and it is all that we need. You will be late again to church. You'll fail at hospitality. You'll fail at showing honor. You'll fail at worshiping Him like He wants you to. You will have days like gardens that are overrun with sin like weeds. But let your lives with all of those thorny imperfections, dry and brittle weaknesses, be the raw material that is set on fire by your consuming God. This too is your witness. So Christian, let your fire be seen this week as your short life here burns with grace. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.